turn with me in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 17, beginning to read with verse 8. We've been looking at the Exodus, and as we followed along, we've taken time to look at the commandments that were given to them at Sinai and the various Levitical laws as well. We've seen uh, some very interesting comparisons with modern medicine as we've done this, and uh, remarkable uh, medical knowledge uh, thousands of years ahead of the time in terms of uh, the spread of disease and the prevention of this through isolation, in terms of the clean and the unclean meats. We come today to a section that deals with the various prohibitions. One prohibition was they were not to offer their sacrifice anywhere except the altar. Uh, This is uh, brought out in the 17th chapter and in the 7th and 8th verses, uh, or 8th verse and ninth verse, Thou shalt say unto them, Whatsoever man there be of the house of Israel, or of the strangers which sojourn among you, that offereth a burnt offering or sacrifice, and bringeth it not unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation to offer it even unto the Lord, even that man shall be cut off from among his people. After preaching uh, last Sunday uh, on the great day of atonement when the sacrifice was offered that typified the death of the Lord Jesus, and uh, this was the one great day in which the high priest would carry Uh, the blood of the Lamb into the innermost part of the sanctuary, the tabernacle, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and there make atonement. Uh, One of the members asked me, uh, how do the Jewish people today observe this? They they don't offer the Lamb today. And this is right. Uh, They don't offer the Lamb today because of this prohibition that we just read. They were only to offer this at the altar of the tabernacle or the temple later. And since they don't have the temple today, the Jewish people cannot follow their commandment and offer correctly. The rabbis on the Day of Atonement today, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, uh, they pray that God would accept an alternate way of them observing this day. They observe it in terms of a fast, and uh, they do not offer the lamb as such for this reason. Another prohibition we read of is the prohibition of eating blood. They were to eat no blood. The tenth verse, Whatsoever man there be of the house of Israel or of the strangers that sojourn among you that eateth any manner of blood, I will even set my face against that soul that eateth blood and will cut him off from among his people. This they do observe, as you find them, the Orthodox Jew, buying kosher meat. Uh, The purpose of this prohibition is given when God says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. You find... uh, An atonement needed here. The word atonement uh, means at one moment. If you break it down a little different, you have the meaning of it. 
peace between parties who are at enmity. And there is an atonement meted between God and man because God is holy and man is sinful. You remember in the earlier portions of Leviticus over and over, God would say, Be thou holy, for I am holy, saith the Lord. God is of purer eyes than to behold evil and canst not look on iniquity, uh, says the writer of uh, Habakkuk. So we have this problem, man being sinful, God being holy, man and God are estranged from one another. God cannot accept man as he is just because of what God is. Atonement, atonement is needed. Something must bring about peace between these parties. The appointment is made here <clears throat> that will produce such atonement. As he says, I have given the blood upon the altar to make atonement for your soul. <clears throat> blood. What did blood signify? There are various modern writers uh, who have wrestled around with this, and they have said uh, it signified life. When it says that the life uh, is in the blood, then blood must signify life, and it's the idea of offering our life to God. But a number of modern theologians have also made a very thorough study of this. Leon Morris, under whom I studied in seminary, has written a book, one of the greatest books of our day, The Apostolic Preaching of the Cross. Leon Morris was a remarkable man. <clears throat> As we sat in class, he would say, well, uh, the term blood occurs 382 times in the Old Testament. The Hebrew word is dom, D-A-M. And uh, the reason that many writers make mistakes <clears throat> as to uh, what the word signifies is they don't look up all 382 in context and see what it meant. But I looked up all 382, he would say, and he didn't have to talk very long before you knew that he had looked up all 382 and knew very thoroughly what it meant. And then some 98 times in the New Testament, the Greek word hema, again, blood, he looked up all 98 of those. And when he got through telling you what it meant, you knew he knew what he was saying. And he says that it means always <clears throat> uh, death by violence. This is the predominant meaning of the word, death by violence. So really, blood signified death. And <clears throat> the appropriateness of the blood being given to make atonement is noted here in the passage that we read. It says, for the, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that make an atonement for the soul. Now, unfortunately, our King James translation doesn't make real clear what's being said here. A better translation for the soul, the Hebrew word, nephesh, for the soul of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to atone for your souls, for the blood atones through the soul. In other words, it's the soul that is contained in the blood that is the atoning element. <clears throat> uh, 
the soul at the close of the verse is the same as the soul at the beginning of the verse. And the means of atonement is the soul that's being offered. The soul dwells in the blood. And so when uh, the blood is poured out, it's the soul that's being offered through violent death in the room of another soul. The wages of sin is death, and it's death of the soul, meaning awful separation of the soul from God in horrible punishment. That's the essence of hell. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. And another soul is appointed by God in the place of the guilty soul, the soul of an animal. And for this soul to be offered, the blood must be offered, because the soul is in the blood, is what's being said here. And it's the soul that makes atonement. The blood makes atonement through the soul, is the way it's phrased. That's why the appointment of blood is appropriate. It was the purpose of God to save them from their doom. And he provides a way by which another soul can be offered in the place of theirs, soul for soul. Then he accepts that soul in place of the others and at one moment is brought about. He he regards the guilt as removed. We can see the appropriateness of this, but also we can see the inappropriateness of it because of the tremendous disproportion between a beast and a man. Here we have a rational, moral creature and an irrational creature, which cannot, by its very nature, be moral, being swapped out. A soul of a beast being accepted in the place of the soul of a man. We could see how, in a sense, the one is guilty, but how can the other really, in a sense, be innocent and be accepted? A terrific inappropriateness. And it's hard to see how you could have a real equivalent or a real atonement being made. And the answer is you didn't. It couldn't. The soul of the beast could not make a real atonement for the soul of the man. This is recognized in Scripture. For instance, in Hebrews, in the New Testament, where you have the Old and New tied together so amazingly, in the 10th chapter and the 4th verse, we read this, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. A recognition of the utter uh, impossibility of this being a real atonement. Uh, Nor could God have appointed this blood of the beast to make atonement unless he had planned for a real atonement to be made by something that would be of equal value. And the fact of the matter is that in his eternal plan, he did decree that in due time there would be an equivalent atonement made. This is brought out in Hebrews 10, 5 through 7. Wherefore, since the blood of bulls and of goats could not make atonement, wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he being the Messiah, 
He saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body thou hast prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do thy will, O God. Now the words here are equivalent to seeing the Messiah in an ancient oracle, an ancient passage of Scripture found back in Psalm 46, written a thousand B.C., which refers to his incarnation, his coming into the world, represents him as using the following language, sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not. God, you didn't really desire sacrifice and offering, but a body hast thou prepared me. In other words, uh, when it says God wouldest not, it's saying that God really had no pleasure in these sacrifices. He appointed them, but they couldn't really make satisfaction for sin. The meaning is that the removal of human guilt, the attainment of human salvation, would come through the body that was prepared for the Messiah when he came. What the sacrifices could not do. Again, in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 8, Above, when he said, Sacrifice and offering, and burnt offerings, and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law, then saith he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. He's saying the first really couldn't make atonement, but the second did. By the which will of God we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The twelfth verse, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. He accomplished, he finished the work. No more sacrifice ever needs to be made. He made the final sacrifice and a complete sacrifice. The will of God was completely fulfilled in Christ offering his body. That was quoting from an Old Testament psalm that spoke of the Messiah doing this. Another classic passage in the Old Testament that spoke of the Messiah offering himself as an atonement was the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. And just an excerpt from that 53rd chapter of Isaiah Uh, In the sixth verse, All we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. In verse 10, It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. God would make the soul of the Messiah an offering for sin. That was foretold 750 B.C. The Jewish worshiper who brought his lamb or his goat, how much did he realize that this was really inadequate to remove the guilt of his sin? That soul of a beast couldn't really be swapped out for the soul of a man. How much was he conscious of that? 
How much did he realize that God was promising through the appointment of this sacrifice another true great sacrifice that would make atonement and that this would be the Messiah? Did any Jews realize that? Some did. Some did. Some, as they reflected on the inadequacy of the sacrifice of the beast, and as they thought of the great promises of blessing and peace and glory that were promised through this coming Messiah, must have connected the two. As a matter of fact, Fairburn, in his great work, The Typology of Scripture, quotes one Jewish rabbi who commented way before Christ, on that 53rd chapter of Isaiah, is saying this. He said, in reference to the Messiah, that he would pour out his soul unto death, and that his blood, the Messiah's blood, would make atonement for the people of God. As an Old Testament rabbi commenting on this 53rd chapter of Isaiah, But that kind of insight is offset by the overwhelming majority of rabbinical writers who commented on the Old Testament and who completely missed it, who twisted it around so terribly it's a wonder that any of the Old Testament Jews had any insight at all into the future as to what God was really intending. A great majority of the rabbis missed it totally. Atonement has been accomplished. This is the teaching of the New Testament. Jesus was pointed out by John the Baptist as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He referred to himself as the one who would give his soul a ransom for many. Uh, He is referred to as uh, the one who made peace through the blood of his cross, the one who purchased redemption through his blood, We wash our robes and make them white in the blood of the Lamb. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb. Jesus said, this is the new covenant established in my blood. Over and over and over, we find that his blood is the true atoning blood and that this atonement has been accomplished. There are various theories of how the atonement was accomplished. For instance, uh, early Christian writers after New Testament times, as they tried to set forth how the blood of Jesus made atonement, uh, they really were confused, and they would say it was by Christ being our great example. Uh, Like uh, a courageous soldier battles and uh, maybe is killed in battle, but he's a great example, and we should pattern our lives after his. And, of course, Christ is our example and is referred to as such in the New Testament. But, you see, we didn't need an example. We already knew what we ought to do, and we weren't doing it. What we needed was a Savior, someone who could remove the guilt of our sins. Had Christ come and lived and been the greatest example of a moral life that ever existed, he couldn't have been our Savior. It was his death. And that's why so much of the New Testament, so much of each gospel is taken up with a death of Jesus Christ. Over half of John's gospel concentrates on one day of Jesus' life, his death. A little later theory was the 
moral influence theory. This is closely related to the example. Um, Horace Bushnell gave this theory, one of its finest statements. And this idea is that there's a difference between a soldier who shows courage and dies in battle. I'm not too much involved in that except that he's an example. But suppose I was fighting side by side with that soldier and and uh, I fell at his feet wounded, and then he stood over me and fought off those who were coming after me and lost his own life, but mine was saved in the process. And now, as I think of his sacrifice really being for me, it influences me to try myself to be a better soldier. Now, that's getting closer to the truth, uh, in a sense. Uh, we do see... Uh, the love of Jesus Christ for us personally in his death, and this influences us, but still it stops short. Because if it's only a question of moral influence, there have been so many cases where uh, someone was really not influenced, not changed at all by someone else's death. As a library dedicated to a man by the name of McGill at Westminster College in Pennsylvania. McGill died. He was a missionary to the Egyptians, and he died saving the life of a young Egyptian girl. But you know, it didn't affect her life at all. She went on and lived a very immoral life. Moral influence comes short, too. It just doesn't accomplish anything, really. Then there was another view, the view of a Dutch lawyer by the name of Grotius. This is called the governmental view. He said that, really, Jesus was dying to make satisfaction to the law of God, that law's claims must be satisfied. And uh, he alone could make satisfaction. Man was guilty. Man couldn't make it. And uh, so he died to satisfy the law, make real payment to the law. He's coming closer. He gets the idea of satisfaction, and he gets the idea of substitution. But he still stops short. The trouble with his view is kind of impersonal. Here's the law up here that has to be satisfied. But where is the atonement between God and man? It's too impersonal. It's kind of got God at arm's length from his law. And then a monk by the name of Anselm wrote a book, Cur Deus Homo. Why did God become man? In the medieval times, uh, Anselm wrote this. And Anselm said that <clears throat> you must understand the nature of sin. Sin uh, in man is something that's perpetrated against the honor and the majesty of God himself as a person. And he is personally offended. And he is a holy being, and he is a lawgiver. And satisfaction must be made to his sense of justice and to his law, but to him personally also. He must be propitiated. He must be placated. Man was guilty, and man had to make the atonement, but man couldn't. God alone could make the atonement, but God wasn't man. And so God became man lived a perfect life, and then made a full atonement, and placated himself. We must be careful not to divide the Trinity. 
Sometimes we think of God the Father as hating us, and Christ loved us, and he died so that God the Father wouldn't be mad at us. That's totally wrong. Christ didn't, ma- didn't die to make God love us. He died because God did love us. God so loved us that he sent his Son. But God was also holy, and God had a sense of law and justice. And so God's love satisfied God's law. God so loved us that he sent his Son, a very costly thing for the Father and for the Son. They both loved us, and they both had this sense of law and justice and worked it out in this way. In 1870 in Russia, there was a guerrilla band that was rebelling against the Tsarist regime. It was under the leadership of a man by the name of Shamel. And this little guerrilla band, uh, they had to have their own laws. This was something of a little universe in itself, and if it was to uh, exist, it had to have laws. And stealing broke out in this little company. And this must be stopped. Shamel wrestled around with it, and he decided that the punishment for stealing would be 100 lashes. Within a few days, the thief was caught. The thief was his own mother. He went apart, went into his tent for three days, and wrestled with this problem. Law wrestling with love. And finally, he came to a decision. Even though it was his mother, she would have to be punished. He came out and decreed 100 lashes. So they stripped the woman's back and they began to lay the lashes on her as he watched. He stood it for three lashes. With the third lash, he cried out and he said, No, no! And he himself bared his back and it had been revealed to him as he watched another solution. And he substituted himself in her place and he took those 97 lashes upon himself. And here we see the same thing that God was wrestling with, law and love and the claims of both and his costly solution to it at his own cost. The atonement has been made in this way, but an appropriate response is required. We must appropriate the work that's been done. This requires a certain attitude. You know, it's interesting, as you read the Old Testament, you find in some places where God is offended at the sacrifices and will not accept them. For instance, in Isaiah, the first chapter, To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. I delight not in the blood of bullocks and of lambs and of he goats. When ye come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. So on. Now, God had appointed these sacrifices. Why is he so offended with them? And why are they unacceptable to him? Because they were not brought with the right attitude of heart. What God was after was the heart of the worshiper. And so he says, 
When ye spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when ye make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash you, make you clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do well. And come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Uh, Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be whiter than snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. They came with unrepentant hearts. Oh, they went through the motions of offering the sacrifice, but they didn't have true penitence. They were not willing to change their ways, as he had commanded, and their sacrifice was unacceptable. Again, appropriation is brought out in the New Testament when Jesus, in speaking to the Jews, makes this astounding statement. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said unto them, and think of how this would have struck a Jew who had been taught not to eat blood. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whosoever eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day, for my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. You must drink my blood. What does it mean to drink his blood? It's the idea of appropriation. You eat his flesh. If we had a piece of bread here, we could look at it, we could feel it, we could handle it, but if we didn't eat it, we would receive no nourishment from it. So it is with the death of Jesus Christ. It is life indeed. It does make atonement. But unless we drink it, Unless we drink his blood, unless we take him for our own by an act of surrender and trust in him, then it is to no avail. We have no life in us. Remember that verse that we sung? Other refuge have I none, hangs my guilty soul on thee. That's what it means to take Jesus Christ. Lord, my only refuge is your death. Hangs my guilty soul on thee. Like a man commits himself to a parachute, I put my trust in Jesus Christ alone. That's my sole hope of safety. And as I do this with a surrendered heart, a repentant heart, then I am drinking his blood and I am eating his flesh. Brethren, This is used throughout the New Testament as a tremendous motive to Christians to live as he said live. Think of how that mother who saw her son take those 97 lashes for the crime that she had done. Think of the next time she was tempted to steal, how she would see the back of her son bloody from those lashes and she would say, no, I cannot steal anymore ever again because of what it cost my son. Surely she felt that way. And how must we feel as Christians? Every time we start to touch that forbidden thing or to do that sinful thing, we must see the blood of Jesus Christ spilt on the cross of Calvary for that sin. 
who bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should henceforth live under righteousness. What a tremendous motive Peter holds out there. Brethren, we cannot go on in sin anymore. Let that view come to you daily. Every time they sat down to a meal, eat no blood. It was continually before them. Every sacrifice they bring. When they killed a beast, they poured out his blood and covered it. Eat no blood. It's the blood that makes atonement. And let it continually be before us. The blood of Jesus Christ made atonement. Henceforth I must live for him. Then there are those here today who have not appropriated, have not committed their life in surrender and trust. They want to live their own life, their own way. Well, it's folly. You know what the New Testament says? Men died without mercy under Moses' law upon the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much sore a punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant a thing of naught and hath done despite under the Spirit of grace. The one who has said, So Jesus died. So the Spirit is striving with me to commit my life to him. Well, I want to live my life my own way at least for a time. Oh, what ingratitude and what stupidity and what danger of how much sore a punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God. That's what it's doing. It's walking right over him. I don't care. I'm going to do my own thing. Is that your attitude today? Are you guilty of that? Won't you today drink the blood of the Son of God and eat his flesh? Won't you today come and reason with the Lord and let him cleanse you? Let us bow in prayer. If you're here today and you haven't appropriated Jesus Christ, right now, if you want to and you're serious about him being in control of your life, pray in your heart the prayer that I pray out loud. Lord Jesus, I acknowledge the guilt of my soul, my need of atonement. I thank you that you were appointed to make atonement and that by your stripes I can be healed. Lord Jesus, I drink your blood right now. I put my trust in you and I surrender my life to you. Come into my heart and indwell me and change me. Amen.